now, Lord, as we contemplate going into your word together, we're thankful for it. Thank you so very much that you, you don't just speak to our hearts and consciences. You actually have given us a book that we can read and know that you are speaking to us. This is your book, the Holy Scriptures. It's, it's written by you comes from you and that was written down by men you chose to carry that out it's your words written to us so we are thankful for it and we pray that as we open it this morning that you would open our eyes to see and our hearts to receive what you have for us we ask this in the great name of Jesus our Savior amen so it was 12 8 2019. That date live in your memory? December 8, 2019. I mean, more than, more than that it was a day on the calendar a little over a year and a half ago. I, I would doubt that any of you would really get where I'm going with this. 12-8-2019 was the last Sunday that we were together in the book of Philippians. And then COVID hit, and Carol and I were out of town when that first hit, and we got back, and we, since then, have done a lot of different series, hoping to give us hope and encouragement, and kind of drawing our attention to what the church is to be like, and what it shouldn't be doing, and so on and so forth. Well, today we're jumping back into Philippians. It kind of reminds me of the story of John Calvin, who was uh, driven out of uh, where he was ministering, I believe in Germany, had to flee for his life to England because of the church, the Roman Catholic Church coming after him to put him to death. And he was gone for 15 years. And when he returned to the church where he had been preaching, he began with the very text that he had left on, off on. So it hasn't been 15 years, but it's been a while. So I thought it would actually be good if we took this morning and do a little review of what we've already seen in the book of Philippians. And then next week, we'll pick up with the verse where we left off. So you can open your Bibles to Philippians, and we'll just be kind of scanning through it, and uh, there'll be some notes up that you're not going to be able to write them all down, I don't think, because we'll be moving through it relatively quick. I I was telling Pastor Tom, and I think I told my wife Carol as well, as I was thinking about doing this review, I went back to all my notes, uh, and I found that I had 224 pages of notes uh, through chapter 3 and verse 6. Now, that was in a larger font. It would have been less if it was a smaller font, but uh, a whole lot that we're not going to be able to cover today. We covered it in the past, but this would be kind of hitting on the high spots of what we've seen already in this, in this wonderful epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church which he had started on a second missionary journey. He had gone into Philippi, preached the gospel, got in trouble, thrown in jail, beaten, and, uh, and out of that brief trip there, a church was planted. Lydia and some other believers who had been gathering at a river, and it became a a church, a church that would honor God. And Paul is now in prison 
after his third missionary journey. He's now in prison in Rome for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he writes several letters to the churches that he had started or that were started as a result of his ministry. Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon, prison epistles. He writes to them, wanting to encourage them. And in this book, he kind of informs them somewhat about his condition and, and what's happening with him, what he expects to take place. But when we first opened this study together in Philippians, we did an overview of the book, and, and that's always a good thing. Get a bird's eye view of the scriptures, see it from up above, get that big picture, and, and then start breaking it apart piece by piece, like you, like you would do with a jigsaw puzzle. You always look at the picture, don't you? Before you start the puzzle, and then all the pieces are there, and you're busy putting all the pieces back together, and you're referencing the big picture always, like, oh, I think this one belongs in this area. And that's kind of what we do when we do Bible study like this. So the big picture of the book, of this epistle, to the church in Philippi from Paul, which I would say is also an epistle to this church and every church, not from Paul directly, but from God directly to us. Much for us to learn from it. So as we did that, we talked about the major themes that are in the letter. A lot of people think that there's one major theme, that this is the epistle of joy. I don't personally think that it's a major theme. I think it's a minor theme. I believe the major themes of this epistle, as we saw, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the major theme, as he is the major theme of all scripture. The Bible is Christocentric. And that's proven as you read through this letter. And there are 47 direct references to the Lord Jesus Christ in this letter. Uh, uh, Another major theme is the gospel of Jesus Christ, clearly tied to the Lord Jesus Christ. There are 10 direct references to the gospel. A third major theme is the community of Christ, the church, the family, the body of believers of Christ. It's written to all and everyone. In fact, that word reappears over and over and over and over and over again, time after time, all, every. And the point is that the Christian life is not to be viewed as an individual thing, but rather You know, it is a matter of pursuing life with other people, with other believers, being partakers of a common life with a common purpose, as Brian already referred to that we covered not too long ago in the book of Acts, chapter 2, and seeing that we have a partnership not only with one another as believers, but with God, with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a major theme. Now, some minor themes that are in the book as well that we saw is the unique nature of Christ. That's one section of the book, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, where it indicates that Jesus is both God and man, and he is both of those in one person. And it is a beautiful hymn describing his sacrifice, his offering himself as a sacrifice so that we could be saved, and God's exaltation of him as a result of that. Another minor theme was suffering for Christ. Wait, could we delete that one? No, we can't. 
It's a, it's, a, it's a theme in the book, suffering for Christ. Of course, Paul himself, he was imprisoned at the time. He had suffered much more beyond his imprisonment. He, you can read a list of it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, all the things that he had gone through as a result of his ministry for Christ and the gospel. But he's writing to this church and saying, you're going to have opponents too. You're going to face difficult circumstances also. You're going to have afflictions also. And, and not, not the afflictions like I have, which are, you know, painful knees right now and, you know, bad back and headaches and, you know, and not, not those kind of afflictions. Afflictions for the sake of the gospel, standing up, being a faithful uh, member of the kingdom of God and proclaiming the king of the kingdom. Opposition will come. That's in the book. Sixteen. Uh, Several times. Another uh, minor theme, of course, is rejoicing in Christ. Joy, rejoice. Sixteen times in the book that word or its compound words are found. Yes. So in the face of suffering, which we know we'll face, there's joy in in facing it. Another uh, minor theme is contentment in life circumstances all that suffering, all that opposition, and so on. It's, it's contentment in it. We'll see in chapter 4 some very clear information about that. Prayer is a minor theme that is in the book as well, particularly in chapter 1 and in chapter 4, the importance of praying for one another, praying for the ministry, praying for the gospel to go out. And then lastly, another minor theme is viewing life with an eternal perspective. Viewing life with an eternal perspective, four direct references to the day of the Lord, that day when he will return, that day when we'll go be with him if we are his children, when others will be judged by him. That day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that is every knee and every tongue, whether it be of a believer or a non-believer. Everyone will eventually recognize Jesus for who he is. Okay, so that was kind of major theme, minor themes. And then we jumped into the book together. We, we spent actually some time in the first two verses, the common greeting that Paul gave to that church. I'm not going to cover that right now. But in chapter 1 and verses 3 through 11, we see praises and prayers for partners. Praises and prayers for partners. Let's, let's read these verses. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always, there's always, all, every. Watch the repeated words. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer, that theme, prayer, of mine for you all, making my Prayer with joy. Three of the, the, the minor themes right there in those two verses. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That other minor theme. So stop there for a moment and, and just think, what, what is Paul doing? He, he's saying, I pray for you guys. I pray for you all the time. I pray for you every time I think of you. And when I pray for you, joy is filling my heart. 
Because I know what kind of believers you are. I know how faithful you are to the Lord. I know that you are still maintaining your partnership with me in the gospel ministry. They were sending them money. They were sending them a person, Epaphroditus. They were sharing in the ministry with them. And it caused his heart to praise God and pray for them. Oh, I I remember as we were going through that, how... How we must take note of that. We should be praying for one another. And I hope that as we pray for one another, that we would have hearts full of joy as we think of each other and what God is doing in each other's lives. So it would cause us to have a full heart, full of joy. And then in verse 7, Paul expresses his the real desire, how deeply he feels for them. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. All oh, these repeated words. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. His deep feelings for this church is rather striking when you compare it to his thoughts about the Galatian church or even his thoughts toward the Corinthian church. This was a church which he could easily praise and had such a yearning to be with them because of their faithfulness to Christ. And then we find a specific prayer in 9 through 11. This is my prayer, that your love will abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ life, eternal perspective, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So his prayer was that they would continue to grow, right? Grow in love, grow in knowledge, grow in discernment, another wisdom, how to use that knowledge with a, with a purpose in mind, that they could approve what is excellent and, of course, disapprove what is not excellent that they would, as a result, be pure and blameless all the way until the end, the day of Christ. That their lives would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. All, all with this in mind, to the praise and glory of God. Sounds like Ephesians chapter 1, doesn't it? Three times. It's all about the praise and glory of God. That's what he prayed about. May we pray for one another that way as well. Right? Not, not, I, I appreciate the prayers that, that I know that you, know, you, you share with the Lord on behalf of my pain. I get told that all the time. Praying for your knees. Praying for your headaches. Stop praying for those. Maybe that's why I continue to have the headaches. You're praying for the headaches. But no, uh, I appreciate those prayers, but pray more importantly for knowledge and discernment for the fruit of righteousness and a deeper love commitment. We should be praying that for each other, all to the praise and glory of God. So from praises and prayers for partners, he moves into kind of the, the real bulk of the letter. This has all been kind of introductory words that he shared up to this point. And he begins the, 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 the content of the, of the letter in verse 12, where it's all about the gospel. It's all about the gospel. Look at verse 12. 
I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He says, I'm in prison. And I want you to know I, it's a good thing that I'm here because the good that has come out of it, the gospel has advanced. And what he means by that, it's advanced into places that would not have advanced had he not been imprisoned. Oh, do we think of our suffering, persecution that way? That what God brings into our lives that may be hard and difficult should be with the result that the gospel goes forth and maybe into places where it otherwise would not go. And it's the gospel for the lost. Verse 13, he said it there. He said, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. What does he mean? It means that because of his imprisonment and his sharing the gospel with Roman soldiers, chained to him 24-7, that that gospel would go from one soldier to another soldier all the way into the imperial guard, which was Caesar's private soldiers meant to protect him. It reached all the way into the household of Caesar. In fact, he says it at the last of the letter in chapter 4, verse 22, those saints in the household of Caesar... It's like, wow, isn't that awesome? The gospel wouldn't have gone there had he not gone through the the imprisonment. So it's all about the gospel for him. It is, and it should be for us as well. Not just for the lost, like in verse 13, but for the saints as well in 14 and following through 17. Most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. Now he goes on to talk about some who were preaching out of envy and jealousy and others who were preaching out of goodwill. But Paul didn't really care if the message was true, if the gospel was being presented, proclaimed, advancing, then he didn't really care if they were intending to hurt him out of pride. No, all he wanted was the gospel to go out. And what is the proper response? to all of that, verse 18 says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, no matter their motivation, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. That theme again that runs through the letter, in that I rejoice. That is the right response. That's how we ought to view what is going on in our lives and and pray that God would help us to see the open doors that he gives us to proclaim the gospel through what we're experiencing. From that, Paul goes on to uh, the next uh, major thrust is honoring Christ in life and in death. That's verses 18, the last part of it, all the way through 26. Look at that with me. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, which, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. 
But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So what is he saying? I want to honor Christ in my life, and I want to honor Christ in my death. And, and he's pretty confident, as, as we read that, right, that he's going to be released from his imprisonment. And he will be, by the way. He is released. He is imprisoned again a second time in Rome when he will then lose his life. But he's confident there will be re- peace, that, that he'll honor Christ because he'll deliver him. And you see that, through, he, he thinks, the prayers of the saints and the Holy Spirit's present will see me through this until I'm delivered. And then it's, I will honor Christ because he is everything to me. Isn't that what he's saying in verse 20 and 21? Is my eager expectation, I hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. I want to honor Christ in my life because he is everything to me. He's everything in my life now, and he'll be everything in my life to come. So whether it is by life, what I'm experiencing now, or by my death, I want Christ to be glorified and honored. The last time I was able to talk with Steve on the phone, he communicated that very thing to me. He says, you know, I'm, I'm ready to go be with the Lord. You know, that's going to be better for me. If I'm, if I'm here longer, okay, but to go and be with Christ, that's better. And you hear, the, hear it in Paul. I, I got this, I'm, I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place because I want to go be with Jesus. That's better. But if God wants me to stay here, then that's what I want to do because I want to be understanding that he has a plan and purpose for my life. And that's really the the big part of that last section. I want to honor Christ because I know that he has a plan and a purpose for my life. Paul's saying that. We should be able to say that. I know that God, because what he has done for me through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through the gospel, I know that he has a plan and a purpose to work wonderful things in me and to work gospel things through me. I want to honor Christ and his plans and purposes for me. That's what Paul's saying. I hope we can say that. From there, Paul talks about conduct worthy of the gospel. And I really think in verse 27, we find what is the major admonition or uh, command, if you will, um, in, in the letter. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So, he's basically saying, I want to honor Christ in my life because he's everything to me. And that's in life or death. And you need to honor Christ 
in the same way. In life and death, you need to live your life in a manner worthy of that gospel. If you claim the gospel as your own, that you are a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, then you should live in a way that honors that, that matches what he has given, that shows the value of what he has given us in his son. And I shared it when we went through this passage that that the the words, uh, your manner of life be, that's a particular word that is found only three places in the New Testament, two in this letter and one elsewhere. And it's a very specific word that it's a word I think Paul made up. He does that many times in his letters. He uses compound words that have never been found in any other writing. And I think this is one of them. And, and the word emphasizes that we are to do this not just as individual believers. This is a word that stresses that we live life in a community of people and how we function in our relationships in the community of Christ must be to the worth of the gospel, must bring glory to the gospel. Not just me individually. That should be true. But the word that he uses is emphasizing that we as a church, we as a family, we as a community of God's people should walk in such a way that demonstrates that we understand and appreciate the value of the gospel. Well, what will that look like? What does he mean by that? Well, it gives us some things right there. First, he says, standing together as one. We've talked about unity over the past months, haven't we? Standing together as one. Not standing together by my, I mean, standing by myself. I'll I'll fight the devil, I'll fight, you know, I can take all he's got. I've got my shield of faith and the arrows, you know, I'll extinguish them. Come on, devil, come on! No. We're not meant to live life that way. We're meant to stand together. Standing side by side together. Then we can withstand the attacks of the enemy. Because some of us are weak at times, and we need the other person to hold us up. Some of us are practically falling over at times. We have one on each side of us that lifts us up. Kind of like Joshua and... I can't remember the other guy's name that held... Moses wrought up when he was in the battle with the Amalekites. He came alongside and held him up, held, help, helped him. So we are to stand together as one. Secondly, in verse 27, he says we are to strive together for the faith. We stand together as one to what end? For the faith. And we don't just stand still, we strive forward with the gospel, with the faith. And in verse 28, he says, that's going to that's gonna take some bravado on your part. He says, don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign of, to them of their destruction, but of your salvation that is from God. Show some courage. Be brave. <laughs> Christ is with you, Right? Do not be dismayed. I'm with you. We sing that. My righteous right hand will hold you up. 
shows some courage. And then lastly, he talks about suffering together by the grace of God. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you. Let me uh, restate that. For it has been graciously granted to you. The word that he uses there involves the same word that we get grace from, charis. It has been graciously granted to us for the sake of Christ, we should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Did you get that? Two wonderful things. Two wonderful things. Well, we really like the first of them. That it has been graciously given to us to believe in Christ. Because we know that for by grace are we saved through faith, and that is not of ourself. It is a gift of God, right? Our faith is given to us. That's why we believe. Yeah, because we wouldn't if he didn't, right? We wouldn't if he didn't. But it has also been graciously given to us the opportunity to suffer for his sake. Again, we, we may not like that as much, but God graciously gives us suffering in our life. And, and he says to them, you know, be engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Says, be willing to even go to prison, even face death if necessary, because God will be with you and he might graciously give you that. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul moves into maintaining unity through humility. Now, I think this is a continuation of what he's just said about conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. How do we do that? We do it by standing side by side as one. We do that by striving together for the faith. We do that by showing some bravado in the face of opposition. And we do that by willing, be, being willing to suffer by the grace of God for the gospel. And we also do that by maintaining unity through humility. In these verse four verses of chapter two, we first see the, the motivation for the unity that he's talking about, this unity that we know that the Holy Spirit has made for us. And we are to be diligent, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter four, be diligent to, to keep, preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But here he says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ or any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit and any affection and sympathy... Now, that's the motivation. That's the motivation for maintaining unity. And and, and it's written as like, if there is this, but I taught you when we went through it that it would be better translated, it communicates better this way. Since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from his love, since there is participation in the Holy Spirit, and since there is deep affection and compassion or sympathy from God toward us, we should maintain unity. The marks of unity is seen in verse 2, where he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. Doesn't that sound just like what he said, standing together as one? And now he says, what that really looks like is having the same minds, the same goals, the same purpose. 
being in full accord, that we are living for Christ because Christ means everything to us in life and in death. Amen. Right? Amen. And then in verse 3 and 4, we see the me- means of that unity. It's, it's put both negatively and positively, twice. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That's the negative, right? Don't do that. Don't live your life out of selfish ambition or conceit, conceit, but rather in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let me say it another way. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, that's the negative, but the positive in contrast is, but also to the interest of others. How do we maintain unity and walk worthy of our calling in Christ? (laughs) We be humble people. Be humble. That's That's that. Be humble. What does that mean? It means I lift up others rather than myself. I see others as more important than myself. I see other people's concerns as more important than my concerns. That's how we'll maintain unity. Always putting others above ourselves. By the way, did you know that God exalts the humble, but he resists the proud? We don't want him resisting us. We want him lifting us up, not out of pride, but to his glory and honor, because we'll be living or dying for the honor of our Savior. And then in verse 5, it's kind of a, the end of that and the, and the beginning of what Paul's going to say about Jesus. We, we really see the model of unity in verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, what I'm really telling you is be like Jesus. Be like Jesus in your attitudes and in your actions. Isn't that what it means to be a Christian? Isn't that what it means to be a Christian? Yes. Let's see, I'm missing my amen corner right there. Yes, that's what it means to be a Christian, to be a Christ follower, to live life like Jesus, to have his attitude and behaviors, his attitude and his actions. So have that same mind. He set the example of how to maintain unity through humility for he humbled himself is what it goes into in the next verse. So Paul in verses 5 through 11 is really appealing to the church to be like Jesus in attitude and action. And and first he says Jesus humbled himself. He humbled himself. He's just said be humble to the church. And now he says follow Jesus' example. He humbled himself. Verse 6 through eight, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Did you pick up all of that? You probably remember it really well when we went through the verses, right? It's stuck like glue in your heads. Jesus pre-existed, right? He's God. 
He was in the form, the very essence of God, but he didn't consider equalities with God to be something that he would use for his own advantage. That's what I say. He didn't consider equalities with God to be something to be grasped onto. He was willing to leave the glory of heaven and come to this earth, humble himself first by becoming a man, living a perfect life. Being like men, that's what it says, being found in the form of man. And then he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he humbled himself and he became obedient to the Father's will. Isn't that really what we are to do? Jesus said over and over and over again, particularly in the Gospel of John, I've come to do my Father's will. I come to speak his words. I come to do what he's commanded me to do. That's all I'm focused on is pleasing the Father. And he deserves all glory, doesn't he? And the Father exalts him at the end of this passage, but that's how we are to live. God, I only want to do what you want me to do. Pastor Greg was sharing that with us last week. I only want to be involved in what you want me involved in. I want to share your words. I want to share the gospel. I want to see it advance among lost people and encourage believers. Oh, the humiliation of Christ, the humbling of himself and his obedience unto death. And of course, that is why the Father has highly exalted him. Just like he exalts the humble, he exalted his humble son and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And the Father has bestowed upon us a name as well. Son, daughter, right? We're in his family. He's exalted us with a name as well. We belong to him. With Jesus, again, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess who he is, that he is Jesus Christ, the Lord. He is the man Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies. And he is none other than the Lord God himself. This will bring glory and praise to God. The same thing that we saw earlier with the gospel. It's all to be done. We are to live to the honor and glory of God. Then in 2.14 through 18, or I'm sorry, 2.12 through 13, Paul talks about working out your salvation. Working out your salvation. Let's read those verses. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. So I remember we talked about this at length. We spent a a lot of time on it. But essentially it's saying, uh, let me give you this reminder. We work out our salvation, which God has given us. We don't work for salvation. We work out what he has given us. And that takes obedience. Who just set the example of obedience? Jesus who obeyed the Father's will and went to death, even death on a cross. So we, if we want to walk worthy of that gospel, we will walk in obedience 
will walk in obedience. But I, I don't know that I, I just, I don't, I, I can't do that. Yes, you can. Why? Because it's God who's working in you. It's not you saying, I got to obey. I know I must obey. I can, I can, I can. That's Romans 7. That ends in agony and defeat. But you must obey, yes. But you can obey. Because it's God who's doing it in you and through you. That's really what that is saying in verse 13. Well, what does that look like? Working out our salvation to the glory and honor of God. (laughs) Walking worthy of the gospel. Well, a, a few things. One is doing all things without grumbling and disputing, right? Doing all things without grumbling, it's not allowed. If you want to obey God, stop grumbling. Stop complaining. And we live in a world that does nothing but grumble and complain. Let's not be like the world. Let's be like our Savior, who didn't grumble and complain about what the Father had him do. And nor should we. Why? That we'd be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. That's what God makes us to be. We don't make ourselves that, do we? Salvation makes us that. We're blameless. God looks at us as blameless because of the blood of Christ. And innocent. Well, every one of us knows that we're guilty of sin, right? But we're innocent in the eyes of God because of what Christ has done for us. Blameless and innocent. Children of God. Not children of the devil anymore. Without blemish. There's not a spot, a wrinkle on us that shouldn't be there. Because of what Christ has done for us. Now, there's a purpose for God doing that for us and in us. Because he wants to work through us in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom we shine as lights in the world. You see, I mean, that's what the gospel is. It reaches out to this dark and twisted, corrupt, crooked world. And we are to be a straight line running through a crooked world. And we are to be a bright light shining in a dark world. That's what he says, shining as starlights in this world. Well, how am I going to do that? I just don't know that I can do that. Hold fast to the word of life. That's the next phrase. Holding fast to the word of life. God will give you what you need to be, all that he wants you to be. It's kind of like the army, right? Be all that you can be in the army. No, be all that you can be as children of God, as you work out your salvation, because God is working in and through you, and you're living blameless and innocent, without blemish, so that you can show the straight way to the dark and lost and be a bright light for those who are walking in darkness. Hmm. And that takes a willingness to suffer, right? Verse 17 and 18 comes up again. Even if I'm poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, in the rest of chapter 2, so 19 through 30, Paul lays out two more examples that they should follow. Two more examples that they should follow. And why does he give us the two examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus? I think it is because he's given them the example of Christ, and people might tend to think, 
I can't be like Christ because he was the son of God as well as the son of man. How can you expect me to live like him? Let me give you a couple examples of those who are doing it. That's what he's saying when he speaks about Timothy and Titus. Verse 19 through 24, he speaks about Timothy. He says, I hope in Lord Jesus send Timothy to you so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will generally be concerned for your welfare. For they, all the other people, all seek their own interest. Doesn't that sound like the beginning of chapter 4? Don't seek your own interest, but the interest of others. Everyone else is seeking their own interest. Timothy will seek your interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I, and I trust in the Lord that I myself will come to you shortly. So he's saying, Timothy is an example for you to follow. And if you want a, one word to describe Timothy's example, it is a single-mindedness. Timothy was a single-minded servant of the Lord. Well, that's Jesus, isn't it? He was single-minded. I've come to do the will of my Father. And Paul is saying, Timothy's another example. You can do this. Be single-minded in your life to live your life to the glory of God because the gospel is worth it. Its value is great. In 25 through 30, he talks about Epaphroditus, a guy that the church had actually sent to Rome to minister to Paul. He said, I I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, not only on him, but me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So what was Epaphroditus? Well, he was an example of the suffering servant, right? The suffering servant. Who was the greatest suffering servant? Christ. He was the suffering servant of the Lord. You see, Paul is all along here saying, live like Christ, because Christ means everything to you in life and in death. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of your calling in him. Well, I'll review the first part of chapter 6 next week as we jump into verse 7. That will lead us right into that. What is the book of Philippians about? Well, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. What should we be about? The Lord Jesus Christ. It's about the gospel. What have we believed in? That would be the gospel, right? Right? What has God done for us? He's made us part of a community of believers to share life with to the glory and honor of God. What is that going to take? It's going to take being faithful to, to get the gospel out, 
Take it out to the lost and let's share it with one another because we need the encouragement of hearing it all the time. Well, that's what we get every Sunday as we remember the Lord. It's the gospel in emblem, isn't it? It's so important for us to be reminded of it. The hymn says, I love to tell the story to those that know it best. Seem hungering and thirsting to know it like the rest. The lost need it. Believers need it. So let's conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. As individual Christians, as a community of believers. And that's going to mean that we live like Christ in humility, in obedience, in seeking to be all that God makes us to be through the gospel, blameless, innocent children of God without blemish, so that we can reach out with the gospel in a twisted world, the corrupt world, the dark world. We must be willing to suffer because... If we're doing all those things, we will. And that will make us all the more like Christ, who is very single-minded in his mission and was willing to suffer as the servant of the Lord. Aren't you glad for the gospel? What, what, what is that gospel again? That Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture. That he was buried and that he rose again according to the scripture. And because he did that, there's forgiveness offered in his name. That's what we're communicating to the lost. Because of what Christ has done, you can be forgiven of your sin. And you can have eternal life instead of eternal death. I hope all of us have believed that, received the gospel. What's everything to us? should be, because Christ is everything to us. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. Thank you, even as we have gone through this, it is good for our souls in light of what we've experienced this week with the loss of two of our dear friends, our brother and sister in Christ. And just hearing about what Christ did through his sacrifice, knowing that through his Uh, death, burial, and resurrection, our own resurrection is secured. Our justification is secured through him. And so with that, we have the promise that we're going to see them again. We pray that that day would be soon. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come. Until you do, help us to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel and living the gospel all to the glory and honor of our Savior. We pray all of this in his name. And Lord, Father, we thank you for the food uh, that we're going to eat, your provision of it, and the servants of the Lord that prepared it. Help us rejoice in your goodness there as well. In Christ's name, amen.